Hear now God's word to us. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. This is a real treat for me. As uh, Gabe mentioned, uh, I was a pastor at Christ Community Church uh, back in 2009 to 2011 and uh, lived downtown on the corner of 10th and Broadway. So uh, Quality Hill Apartments, anyone know where this is? Yes. Uh, So uh, that's where I was at for a couple years and the downtown campus didn't yet exist. Uh, so it was just kind of an idea at that point. It's amazing to see what God has done in a decade. Gabe, you said that like, you know, you're following like all these places that I've been. I'm just like one step ahead. I bet you can't wait to see like what happens to me next. So <laughs> I will say, uh, you know, Gabe's a runner. So, you know, he does these crazy marathons and I don't know if you still do those, Gabe, but uh, I am not a runner. So you did not follow me in that. But Quality Hill is actually a great place to pick up running because it's, you know, it's on the top of a hill, Quality Hill. You can run for like 12 blocks all the way downhill, all the way to that street where, you know, that goes down by Union Station. So if anyone needs to pick up running, I recommend starting on Quality Hill and just uh, zooming down. But I don't have your uh, running prowess, uh, Gabe. This is, this is a joy to be here. So um, now, as Gabe mentioned, I work with an organization called Made to Flourish. And uh, we're a national organization launched out of Christ Community Church, this church. Uh, and we work with pastors and churches across the country, helping their congregations think through how does this faith that we profess, how does it connect with where we spend most of our time uh, working, whether that's paid, if you're in a paid role or an unpaid role. It could be volunteering or stay-at-home parent or whatever that looks like. So I guess that's probably why I was asked to speak today, uh, because in the letter of the Ephesians that we just heard read, uh, Paul actually addresses this topic. Um, so... To put some flesh on it, uh, this is not supposed to be super complicated. I think of my dad. Um, I grew up in a small town in North Dakota. And when I mean small town, I don't mean like medium-sized town. I mean like a small town, population 400 people uh, in in nine nine hours north of here. My dad was high school superintendent. And I saw my dad every day get up at 6 a.m. in the morning. And uh, he'd get ready for, for work and put on a suit. It was always a suit in those days uh, that he'd wear to school. And he'd be to work by 7 a.m. So he could get in like an hour and a half uh, before the students came. So he'd work a long day from like 7 to 5. And he'd try to be home in time for uh, dinner with the family. But then oftentimes my dad would go back to the school at night for a school board meeting or a football game or something with, you know, the theater or something like that. In other words, my dad works really hard, um, and I'm, I'm the runt of uh, my family. I'm, I'm, I'm the, uh, the youngest of five, so my parents are in their mid-80s, and they recently had their 60th wedding anniversary. It's, it's amazing. And I was interviewing uh, my parents, and we were kind of recording it, and I was asking my dad about just, you know, what did work look like through the years? And it was interesting, because even at the, in his early 80s, he could, like, tell me the exact graduation rate of students. 
he could like, he knew like how many went into college versus a trade. And you could tell that as he recounted the stories, like he had a lot of pride in that. It, it meant something to him. And then in another part of my dad's life, we grew up going to church. I mean, we were in the pews every single Sunday. We, none of this sort of one to two times a month stuff that sort of is the norm, norm today. We were there every single week. And it's interesting because I, I, as I think back in all my years attending church, I don't think my dad ever heard from his church that the 50 or 60 hours a week that he was putting in, empowering teachers to have all they needed to help children grow and flourish, how that had anything to do with what God was doing in the world or his purposes. Isn't that interesting? I mean, the average adult, uh, for most of us, we're going to spend like 60,000 hours of our lives working, whether paid or unpaid. Again, uh, whether that's volunteering, whether that's in a different role. And if faith in Christ is supposed to be at the center of our lives, how does that relate with where we spend most of our time? We've been in the series, uh, Reconstructing Faith, asking what it might look like to build back faith that has been deconstructed. And this topic of how our faith relates to our work lives is important because we have to wrestle with whether faith is only private and personal for this like little tiny part of our lives or does it have public relevance for the majority of our waking hours, especially at work. And by the way, this is like an area of deep hurt in our world, isn't it? Like just pick up today's paper or like look at your phone and read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Kansas City Star and you're gonna see work pain on the front page. So does faith have relevance to this area of, of our, that's big in our lives and, and is a, a huge concern in our world? So to help us think more about that today, uh, we're gonna be continuing on in Ephesians looking at that one little sentence uh, that was read about honest work. And I have to say, if you were looking to summarize the entire biblical view of work in just one sentence, this actually does a pretty good job of it. Um, yeah, I, I kind of envision it like a little acorn that contains within it an entire tree. So this little sentence we're gonna be looking at, this little acorn, it has three parts. First of all, we're gonna look at what does honest work require from us? What does it require? Second of all, what does honest work include? And then what does honest work enable? What does it require, what does it include, and what does it enable? So I'm gonna read that passage just one more time so it's fresh in our minds. This is Ephesians 4.28, it says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. First of all, we see in this text that honest work requires repentance. That just means turning the other way from dishonest work. So it begins, let the thief no longer steal. You, you probably heard an echo from one of the Ten Commandments. The Eighth Command in Exodus 20 says, you shall not steal. I think we all know what stealing is, or you probably have a picture in your mind of what that is. It's taking another person's property without their permission or legal right and without intending to return it. But I wonder what comes into your mind when you think about theft or stealing. I tend to think of a situation like maybe something in like, uh, you know, that play or that book, Les Miserables, when Jean Valjean is in the priest's home and like at night he finds the choice silver and like steals away with it um, in, in the night. That's what I think of, of sort of theft. Or maybe you think of a pickpocket who's in a large crowd and grabs your wallet. In other words, 
when I first read this command, it seems to be like this narrow little crime. And because of that, my next thought is, this has almost nothing to do with me. <laughs> like, I don't think of myself as a theft. Yeah, maybe there was like that one or two times, but like, no, I, this doesn't feel like it applies to me. In fact, I almost decided not to talk about this part of the text. I was going to skip over it just because I thought, I don't know how much public relevance this has. But there's this funny thing in the Bible. Sin mutates. It develops variants. Hopefully that's not too soon. Uh, it, It takes on new forms. So what you think is like a narrow command actually is pretty broad. And it hits closer to home than what some of us might think. So even in the Bible, we see many different forms of stealing. Here are just a couple uh, for your consideration uh, that come up in the Bible. The first category is embezzlement. So uh, this word is not actually used in the Bible, but this is the idea that someone entrusts you to keep the money, and you just kind of like skim off the top a little bit. This was the sin of Judas, uh, one of Jesus' followers who was in charge of the money bags. It says in... uh, it says in John 12, 6, he was a thief as a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. I don't know, maybe he thought of it like kind of like the fee that he charged to take care of the money. Here's the second category of, of theft in the Bible. It's not paying those who have done work for you. So it's not just taking what someone has. It's like not giving what is owed. Leviticus 19.3 says, you shall not steal and you shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until morning. This idea that as an employer, if someone's worked for me and I just kind of just wait to pay them, God actually sees that as theft. Here's a third category in the scriptures that you see. Charging more than what is owed, especially when there's like uh, a difference in knowledge between the seller and the buyer. So in the first century, this was common among tax collectors. In Luke chapter 3, these tax collectors are coming to be baptized by John the Baptist. And here's what uh, they say. They say, teacher, they ask, what should we do if we want to repent and turn? John the Baptist said, don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. That's how you're going to demonstrate this turning. Here's a fourth category. We could list lots of them, but here's just one more. Uh, This was common in, in the first century, the category of extortion. This is where you force or you threaten someone to do something and they have to like pay you to get out of it. So again, in that same text, some soldiers came to John the Baptist and asked him, well, what should we do if we're going to repent and follow God? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So these are just a couple examples that we can see that theft in the world of Ephesus was pervasive. It was just everywhere. So today when you look around, it's not hard to see that theft is just as pervasive, but I wonder if you believe that. (laughs) So what are the different forms that theft takes on today? Because we actually live in a very different economy than the first century. So you would expect that theft looks different in our kind of knowledge economy. Here's a couple categories of theft that we see in our economy. First of all, identity theft. Has anyone had their credit card like compromised in the last year, probably in the last week? Uh, So AARP did a study in 2021, victims lost $52 billion to identity thieves in 2021. Here's a second category, tax fraud and avoidance. Charles Reddick, commissioner of the IRS, estimates the U.S. loses $1 trillion, that's actually not a typo, trillion with a T, 
dollars every year in unpaid taxes. I'm just going to not let them know that this is what is owed. Here's a third category of, of theft. Stealing intellectual property. So business owners out there. <laughs> like there's a good business idea and like I just kind of take it even though it has some protections and I make money off of it without permission. The Commission on the Theft of American Intellectual Property estimates that the annual cost from IP losses may be as high as $600 billion. Here's the fourth category. Maybe this is what came to your mind when you think of theft. Shoplifting. According to the Retail Industry Leaders Association, as much as $68.9 billion worth of products were stolen from retailers in 2019, and we've seen numbers go up uh, into the pandemic. But here's the thing. It's actually much more common for employees themselves uh, to steal money rather than someone coming into a business, almost three times as much for employees in a business. Here's uh, a fifth category. Uh, don't worry, we're, we're getting to the end here. Uh, not paying for work that others have done. So some of you are like freelancers or like small business owners and you've been on the wrong side of this. According to a 2019 study commissioned by Freelancers Union, which represents over 56 million independent workers across the U.S., 74% of freelancers have experienced non-payment or late payment from clients. The average freelance worker lost $5,900 on missed payments that year, which accounted for 13% of their total income. If you are a freelancer, you have to budget for theft as like a line item that you put in because it is so common. Here's another category. I'm kind of meddling for this one, so just... Be patient with me. Not working at work and collecting a paycheck. So according to data collected by Gallup survey, 66% of workers in the American workforce are checked out of their jobs. The result, an estimated 480 to $600 billion a year in lost productivity. But yes, I will take my paycheck for that. Thank you very much. You add it all up. And just with these examples, we're talking between two and $3 trillion of our economy that goes to theft. That's about half the entire federal budget. And I didn't even list all the categories. So let me uh, not pick on everyone else. Let me pick on my world, because I'm a pastor. I work with pastors. We work with churches. How do pastors steal? It's actually very obvious how pastors steal. It's plagiarism. In the world of pastoring, plagiarism is the primary mode of stealing. We steal people's ideas or people's sermons and we pass them on as our own ideas and we get paid for it. In fact, if you look closely enough, you'll find that almost every type of work has its unique kind of theft. There's a unique form of stealing from financial professionals and mechanics and like contract workers and nonprofit leaders. Because in every single profession, there are unique temptations to take what is not ours. But in a world where stealing is just everywhere, it's so normal, Paul now says, not so with you. Not so with you. This new community of Jesus followers is characterized by putting off theft in any form. So whatever has been true of your past, whatever has been true of my past, in Christ, stealing now has no place. Now, notice, notice that Paul doesn't end the sentence there. He doesn't end the sentence with a don't, you know, don't steal. 
That's because the Christian life is not simply a list of don'ts. Don't do this, don't do that, make sure you don't do that. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be awful if that was the Christian life? Like, can you imagine explaining some, to someone how to play saxophone and, and someone asks you, well, how do you play? And you just say, well, you, you know, you don't press the wrong keys. You don't play out of tune. You don't go too fast or too slow. And you don't play too loud and too soft. You should be good if you just kind of do those don'ts. That's ridiculous, right? Uh, saxophonists spend way more time thinking about how to make music because that's the point. What's true of playing the saxophone is much more true of following Jesus. There's actually a positive vision of the good life, the life according to God's design. So that's where Paul goes next. Look at the next part of the verse. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Honest work includes all labor, which produces something good. All labor. Now, normally I wouldn't do this, but I want to show you one other translation uh, of the Bible from the one that we read today uh, that gives just a little bit different sense. So here's what we read in, in uh, the English Standard Version. It says, uh, I think we have the, the verse as it was read. It says, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. That's what we just saw. Look at what the NASB says. It's a little bit more kind of wooden, like word for word, literal uh, in the, the Greek. I don't always prefer it, but I actually prefer this, this reading. It says, but rather he must labor, producing what with his own hands, that which is good. You can see how they're related, but this is a better sense of the text, that each of us is to produce by our own effort and work something that is good, something that has value. So here's the question I want to ask you today. What makes your work good? What makes your work good, whether it's paid or unpaid? I mean, if we just pass the mic around here in the room, uh, there's probably a lot of different kinds of work represented here. There's probably architects and mailmen and stay-at-home parents and retirees, maybe some realtors, business owners, teachers. I mean, if Jesus himself came to you this morning and he looked you in the eye and he said, is you labor produce something that is good. What would that even look like? I don't know if you've consciously realized it, but our culture actually gives a lot of answers to what makes work good. It's just kind of floating in the air. Here are the few of the most common answers in our culture. First of all, your work is good if it's aimed at saving the world or changing the world. You ever get the sense of this, that like my job needs to be doing something cataclysmically important uh, in the world. So Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, uh, I'm not, there's not an opinion on Elon Musk, by the way, uh, whatever you think of him, but uh, on Twitter, he gets online and he says, sure, Tesla is a hard place to work. You know, it might not be for you, but no one changed the world on 40 hours a week. It might require more like 80 or 100 hours a week. For Elon Musk, work is about changing the world. Why else would you possibly do that? I have to say that puts a lot of pressure on your day job, if that's your paradigm. Here's a, here's a second answer to what makes work good. Work is good if it's an outlet for our passion. You ever heard this? Like, do what you love. Just follow your passion. If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. That's what Steve Jobs said about a decade ago. Sort of lovely, actually. I, I like the sound of it. I, I'm not sure how many of the, the world's six billion people can ever hope to say that, but it, it does have a nice ring to it. Here's a third uh, answer to what makes work good. Work is good if it earns a large income. Can I get an amen? You know, it's like, I remember being in high school and uh, they had these books of professions 
and you can like read about them and you know teachers and accountants and all these things and then they have this little box in this book they have this little box that told you the salary that they earned in these professions and it became very clear to me as a sophomore in high school I don't need to read the description I just need to look at the number that's how you pick a profession which is why I became a pastor obviously (laughs) I missed that connection somehow yeah exactly exactly I wonder how you'd complete that sentence. Work is good if fill in the blank. In the Bible, work is good for at least three main reasons. I'm not going to talk about these much, but three main reasons. First of all, God himself is a worker. In fact, the first thing you learn as you open up the Bible is not that God is holy or he's righteous or compassionate. We'll find that out later. But the first thing you learn in the Bible is that God is at work producing something that's not only functional, but incredibly beautiful. It's like aesthetics and functionality combined in one in his creation. And, and he's described it as resting from his work and enjoying his work. Secondly, uh, the reason why work is good in the Bible is not only that God does it, but he actually creates us in his image. He, he creates us as humans uh, to be about the ongoing work of creating something good in his creation, which is why in Genesis 2, he gives Adam and Eve not a hymn book to sing, but a shovel to dig. <laughs> And he says, I put all this potential in the earth. Like, figure it out. Explore it. It's all in there for you to find. But there's a third reason. We talk a lot about those first two reasons at Christ Community, by the way. Uh, It comes out in our classes and different sermons. But there's a third reason that I've been reflecting on lately that's really fascinating. And our work is good because God is actually involved with you in your work to serve the tangible needs of others and bring delight to the world. God works through you to serve all people. Here's why I say that. Here's just one one verse. uh, Someone brought this to my attention uh, a couple months ago, and it it just kind of blew my mind. So I don't don't know if that'll do that for you, but, but here's the verse. It's in Isaiah. This is describing the work of a farmer, by the way, just as we're getting into it. It says, does the plowman plow every day to plant seed? No. Does he continuously break up and cultivate the soil? No. He plants wheat in rows and barley in plots with spelt as their border. His God teaches him order. He instructs him. Certainly black cumin is not threshed with a threshing board and a cartwheel is not rolled over the cumin, but black cumin is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Bread grain is crushed, but it's not threshed endlessly. Though the wheel of the farmer's cart rumbles, his horses do not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He gives wonderful advice. He gives great wisdom. This is an amazing text. (laughs) The whole thing is talking about all the like insider knowledge that farmers have, little tricks of the trade, little hacks to maximize the yield of the crop. You know, like, you know, bread grain needs to be crushed, not threshed too much. You might ruin it. Or there's a way to guide the cart and drive it so it doesn't crush the crop. There's an art and a craft in how to do it well. You'd have to be a farmer to fully appreciate these things. And then, did you see it? This verse says that God is the one who instructs and teaches the farmer these things. Do you know what that means? It means that God is into the craft. It means that like the the technique, the nitty-gritty details of how to do it well. After all, it's his creation to be explored. He designed it with those properties to be discovered and paid attention to you. 
this is profound for your work. So you're a hairstylist. And there's a particular way that you deal with certain kinds of hair, whether it's thin or whether it's thick or a thin spot over here or the way it sits on the face. All of it matters for how you bring beauty and confidence and dignity to someone. Or you're a server at a restaurant and you figured out there's this rhythm to like when and how to check in with guests and how to offer a suggestion that's going to align with the occasion and the temperament of that person. You can just tell because you've been at it. Or you're a financial advisor and you know what questions to ask to draw out someone's risk tolerance or their values or to help them unpack the bigger picture of what they want their wealth to do in the world to bring about good. On and on and on, there are tricks to your trade. And this passage in Isaiah says that God is actually involved in that. He's actually your ultimate instructor because your work participates with the work that he's doing in the world. Here's how I'll sum it up. Work becomes good when through increasing excellence and love, people are increasingly helped by the way your work serves them. It's one of the main ways that God demonstrates his love, his provision, his grace, his care, and his purposes in the world. Here's how uh, one person said it, Dorothy Sayers. She was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. She was a writer and wrote plays and things like that. She says, the only Christian work is good work well done. Work must be good work before it can call itself God's work. Let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in their profession or trade, not outside of it. So work is meant to produce a good thing in and of itself. But in the Bible, work is good for another reason. This is our final point. Work is good for what it enables. Look, at, look back at this, how this passage finishes. It says, work producing someone with their hands that is good so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Honest work enables generosity. This last clause uh, points to this other reason why we work. It provides for our needs and it enables us to have something to share with others. I remember some of my first paychecks that I got, like in my first jobs, that feeling that I had when I received them, you know, that piece of paper, they don't use paper anymore, but back then it was a piece of paper with a number on it. And it was, it was like magic. <laughs> Just all these possibilities of what that could do in the world, you know, as a single young guy. Do you remember your first paycheck? Like what that felt like? Maybe it was babysitting or mowing the lawn or something. It was just amazing thrill. As life goes on though, the number of, and we all know this, the number of bills and, that consume our paychecks also increases. And if you've been working for long enough, it can be easy to begin thinking that the sole purpose of earning money is only to fulfill your own needs and sort of like catch up with the bills in our lives. I feel that in my own life. But one of the great gifts of work is it allows us to earn some money, whether that's a little bit or a lot, to be generous with others, to have something to share with others. It lets us express this aspect of what God is like. And by the way, it doesn't always require a lot of extravagance or even a lot of money because, in fact, when you look at the New Testament, we're not going to read this passage, but one of the groups that is called out for like sharing with others in need is one of the poorest groups in the New Testament. 
It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. They were the Bereans. They, were in, they lived in Macedonia. And, and Paul actually says, he says, in the midst of a severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. Having very little, the Bereans gave very much. There's actually, you can Google this. There's actually a lot of great data available uh, on giving trends by zip code uh, or area of the country. And data consistently shows like people who live in low income zip codes are oftentimes the most generous. So this is not about having so much excess that you can't possibly think of like, how are you going to use it all? So you might as well share it with others because otherwise you just burn it or something. One of the great dangers is believing the lie that we can start to share when we have a little bit more. Just a little bit later. Not quite yet. But the Ephesians themselves in this passage were very likely people of very eager means. So this can be a small amount to share or a very amount, a large amount to share. It could be a piece of bread. It could be an extra room in your house or apartment. Or it could be something a thousand times that much. I love how, what Dorothy Day, she was in the Catholic uh, labor movement. Here's how she put it. She said, it seems to me that in the future, the family, the ideal family will always try to care for one more. I love that. Have you ever been on the receiving end of someone who had something to share with you? It's like receiving life itself, especially if you were in great need at that time in your life. And I wonder for most of us if there's a close family member or a good friend that you have. And when you think of them, just like you just imagine them, you've noticed they're always finding new ways to share with those in need. I was thinking about my parents, and I don't mean to be too self-reflective, but they're in their 80s now, so I think I've been thinking more about their life. Um, I mentioned we grew up in a small town. I've already said that my dad was in education. My mom was a stay-at-home parent. So... I lived in a home where all of our needs were provided for, but it was a house of, uh, of modest means. And recently, not even connected to this sermon, I was thinking about ways that like generosity showed up in their lives. And I realized like just different ways all through their life kept popping up. Like I always knew that when my dad was in those pews on Sunday, I always saw this like folded check that he would put in the plate every other week. And I just kind of took note of that as a kid, that this seemed important to him. And then, like, I remember, like, we would visit this missionary family. They, they were a missionary in Mexico, and they were off pastoring. I didn't really know them very much, but we'd have a meal with them, like, once every year, every other year. And I was talking with my dad just a couple weeks ago, and they've been on this fixed income, and uh, he said that he met with this guy again. His name is Dave, and uh, he just kind of casually mentioned that for the past about 50 years, they've been supporting them on a monthly basis. Then there was this local homeless shelter that my mom just loved. She would try to, you know, get people to, like, put their clothes on that had been lightly used and to give it to this. And when she could, she'd try to contribute at the end of the year. There was a local radio station producer that stopped by our house and knocked on our door. My mom loved Christian radio. She loved listening to preachers. Maybe that's why I grew up a preacher. Who knows? But the Christian radio producer just said, hey, I just want you to know you're faithful giving over the last decade or so. Here's what that is, and thank you so much. And then this got me. I recently called my parents. And my mom, she can't walk without a, uh, without a walker. She's, her, her, heart, her health is failing. 
but they took the phone call from the parking lot of the grocery store. They've got this 16-year-old uh, Chevy Impala. And I said, what are, you, why are you, what are you doing in the, you know, the parking lot of the grocery store? She said, oh, uh, our neighbor, who, by the way, is a very difficult person, uh, just between you and me. Uh, my neighbor uh, didn't have a car, and, and we, uh, she asked for a ride, so we wanted to give him a ride to the grocery store. See, it's a little check here, a little assembly of clothes over here, a 16-year-old car that can give a ride to a neighbor in need. Nothing flashy, it's nothing extravagant. But it's almost as if they actually believed at their core that after working with their hands, stewarding what God had given them, producing something good, they were entrusted to give something to anyone who was in need. Maybe you've seen generosity like that. Someone who is always finding a new way to share and finding a new way to give. I have to say, when you see it, it's really compelling. It's actually strange. It's, it, it doesn't seem normal in our world. Because in our world, where everyone is just doubling down, thinking of their own concerns and wants and needs, it's different. It has the aroma of Christ. Because that's what he does. That's who he is. That's how he acts. God is at work constantly in our world. And in you and me, always producing what is good. And then he gives freely, lavishly, gratuitously, both in the gifts of his creation, but especially in his gift of grace to us with no questions asked, eternal life in Christ for anyone who would trust him. We actually read about that early in this series. I don't know if we have the slide or not, but you, you might have remember this verse. It's in Ephesians 2, 8. Uh, through 10. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There it is again, except for the order is reversed. First, God's gift, his grace, his sharing, yes, of his own life, his own body, his generosity. And then his work, uh, that passage called it his handiwork. Did you see the object of God's work, the object of his handiwork? It's you. You are his handiwork. And God has promised that he won't stop working on you, that he who began a good work will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God has a work project, and your name is on it. Work and generosity, that's what we're called to. But only because of his work and his generosity first to us in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we remember today your work in our world in a million ways that we do not even realize that we do not see even though we see the fruit of your work. And your incredible generosity, we consider it today. And we, I, I just, I pray for each person that by your spirit, you might give them a new imagination of what it looks like to offer their work, whatever that looks like, whether it's volunteering or helping with kids or whatever it would be, any of their contribution, that you would enliven that by your spirit and that whatever you've entrusted us with, you would help us to open up our hands to share with those around us uh, who are in need. Thank you so much for uh, who you are and what you've called us to. We put our 
uh, focus on you today. And we pray in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen, amen.